Welcome to Skeptex, the weekly show where we take a deep dive into the world of tech news, research and politics. I'm Nayana. And I'm Josh, and we are back for a new season of the show. It's been a little while. Uh, we've both been quite busy over the summer, Nayana, but uh, as the <laughs> sort of back-to-school vibes roll around, we thought it'd be a good time to kick off with, I think this is season six of Skeptics. Yeah, woo, okay. Oh my gosh, we've been doing this for a while now, huh? We're yeah. pros by this point. Even if at this point, as we speak, Josh and I are recording in separate places because I have had COVID, so... Yeah. Um, you know, it's not quite the launch that we necessarily expected for the season, but we're, we're excited to be recording anyway. It's great to be back, and there's lots of stuff that we're going to be talking about uh, over the course of the show. But the first story that we're going to cover, I think, has to be the ongoing travails of the network, which when we last recorded, I think was known as Twitter, but has now been rebranded mm. as X. Um, the story we're going to focus on today is the rumour changes to the site, which will involve the site being charged uh, to use for all users. Uh, but we might also cover some of the stuff that's gone on over the last few months with the, with the platform as well. But no, no firstly, on, on this news that Twitter and uh, Elon Musk may look to, to charge every user for using it, what was your reaction to that one? Well, I think I did actually tweet about it. Um, <laughs> as, much as, as much as they've changed the name of Twitter to X, I don't think they've... Um, renamed what it is called to tweet <laughs> so i yeah i mean i just tweeted well goodbye i mean if, the, if this is true i i don't have any desire to pay for this it's already a really buggy glitchy app um i don't think anyone i mean i personally don't want twitter to have my payment details i think that's you know just another website that has your payment details is not something anyone is looking for at this point and to be honest i mean if this is true maybe it's one of those things that will be there's so much backlash against it that'll probably be driven quite quickly away. But as a friend put it, it is really hard to um, not believe that he bought this website to drive it into the ground because there have been so many changes that have been completely unasked for and seem to do a lot of damage to what Twitter or X or you know whatever a social networking site is. I thought the kind of rule of thumb for these websites, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Instagram, whether it's Twitter you know, has been, you don't charge people for this because yeah. as soon as you ha- charge, as soon as you get people to put payment details down, you're you're going to lose huge amounts, if not most of your, your user base. I mean, that was always the kind of rule book that Facebook operated yeah. from. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what do you think of Elon Musk trying to change those rules? <laughs> well, I mean, if it wasn't Elon Musk and if it was uh, a more benevolent um, owner of, of a platform proposing this, you know, we've been often complaining and criticizing the um, if you're not paying, then you're the product model of social media for a, for a long time. Mm. Also, there are still major questions involved with uh, the use of individuals' data and how ads are sold and how they're pitched to them and the role that that has in um, creating many problems with, with social media. Uh, but in this instance, yeah, I think it's it's fairly clear to say that, yeah, either, either Musk is trying to run into the ground deliberately um, or... I think he just more likely perhaps just has a fundamental misunderstanding of what Twitter's utility was and what it what it used to be for civil society, for uh, as is kind of always gathering place really for various parts of society to to converse and to share information. I think not just this proposed change, but many many other um, changes that have gone on. I was looking at a list of U turns he'd 
he'd made recently in anticipation that this might be another U-turn. Um, but for example, there was, you know, journey back to earlier this year, there was a whole debacle over the, uh, first the blue ticks, obviously changing what blue ticks really mean, and then the fight with organisations like the BBC around, around state-sponsored media and all these little paper cuts, I think, uh, Musk has made on the platform, yeah. uh, which have just gradually sort of ground it, as you say, uh, ground it down. And so looking, looking ahead, you know, I, I don't think this will happen. I think anyone looking at Twitter's, uh, revenue sheet would see that advertising to free users still is the, the big part of the pie and clearly the um, Twitter blue, whatever it's called these days, hasn't taken off. Um, so I think it's a X little bit more... premium. Uh, yeah, I think it's... Which sounds so bad. Uh, <laughs> I know, I think which sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think... But I think it's just, you know, another case of thinking out loud from Musk and, and then the media, I suppose, including us, taking that maybe a bit too seriously. But, you know, we thought we, we saw this as an opportunity really to talk more generally about the impact a lot of it negative that Musk's tenure has had uh, on the platform that used to be called Twitter. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. Could you see this actually happening in the coming weeks and months? Well, it reminds me a little bit of when they introduced the rate limit for like a day and it was very mm. much a terrible, terrible idea. And again, an idea from someone with a fundamental misunderstanding of what Twitter is and how people yeah. use Twitter. Um, and it went away kind of just as quickly as as, as it had come because I think suddenly that became clear and there was so much backlash against it. And ultimately these platforms, I mean, theoretically are as strong as their users. And so I think people will just refuse to pay for this. Um, the yeah. cost also of X premium, which as I mentioned is a really bad name is something like 11 pounds a month, which is a really quite a significant cost <laughs> for yeah. very little payoff. So, I mean, even if, I mean, I think Elon Musk said something like it'll be a few dollars a month for charging for x and that would i mean that's still a significant amount of money for a platform that has fewer and fewer people kind of making meaningful posts on it so personally i think no but i think that even even you know floating the idea is such a strong indicator of how way off base elon musk's ideas are um yeah and again it's that kind of issue we've always seen with musk of just saying things and then you know it's so unclear to us how serious the idea is but it's very worrying, really. Yeah, he certainly says a lot of stuff, and we're going to cover some of that, <laughs> some of that later on in the episode as, as well. Uh, but I think, as you say, that it's a, there's a lot of thinking out loud going on. I think maybe what has changed over the last uh, few months, maybe in the year or so since he took, took over, uh, is that there are now some, I think, quite plausible rivals to Twitter, not just Meta's mm. uh, threads, which has been set up, which does seem like it's dropped off quite a bit, but Mastodon, which was which was which has been there for a long time, and also most recently Blue Sky, which I recently joined, and have to say, I find it kind of interesting. It can't match Twitter for scale yet, but what you do, yeah. I think, feel is it does feel a little bit like the early days of Twitter, where surely, yeah, not everyone was on it, but those who were on it were quite engaged. You could see what they had to say. There was some relatively high level of debate, a bit less dunking uh, on views you disagree with. And uh, yeah, and actually, ironically, maybe a little bit nostalgic, really, for for the days of, hmm. of Twitter that have, have lost. And, and another sort of angle of Twitter, which I've really noticed, is that I think, um, you know, a lot of ordinary posts get a lot less engagement. Like, it seems like the, the power law has really kicked in. And it really, if you're wanting to have a tweet get seen by lots and lots of people, you need to see something really controversial or really striking or yeah. something or other. And I don't think it really rewards that sort of humdrum um, pulse that, that Twitter used to have back in the day. And actually, mm. it seems like other, other rivals... Um, might be better at, at doing that. So we'll see. But I think that the idea that Twitter is irreplaceable has has certainly 
um, shifted as well in recent months. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I think we've we've always had this back and forth on the podcast about, um, you know, substitutes to Twitter and new new platforms. And I've always been on the side of I'm not sure there is any other platform that's quite the same. And I and I think the issue is almost that there are a few choices. Um, you know, there is Blue Sky, there is Mastodon, and I, I can see that some of my circles will move to like Blue Sky, for example. I think. Yeah you know, academics and journalists might move to Blue Sky quite easily. But there's also a lot of content on Twitter that's just funny people posting or like pop culture. You know, there's there's people who you don't necessarily expect to meet in real life who occasionally come up on on your Twitter. Um, And it depends why you use Twitter. Certainly that's a reason I use Twitter is occasionally comment is like tweets like that. Um, And I don't see those people migrating wholesale to mastodon or to blue sky i think there'll be a lot more splintering already i know some people in like non kind of academic or whatever circles moving just to instagram again because Mm -hmm. you can you know use text on instagram too and you know there's the story function so um and people already have it and the idea of downloading a new app is a bit i mean certainly for me as well the idea of downloading a new app is just a bit a well, bit think, wearying, to be honest. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And the people, the groups of people who you mentioned moving, you mentioned journalists and academics, I'd also add potentially tech people themselves. I think mm. for some people, like the splintering is kind of the point. Like if you look at the design, certainly of Mastodon, but also yeah. Blue Sky, they talk about moving from platforms to protocols. Um, and mm. I think for some people who who see the, the downsides, the you know, enormous power that is accrued by platform companies, um, it's quite an attractive alternative to have these protocols where you can move your data and even your your social network between different platforms or different services, uh, and so I think yeah. for some people that splintering is maybe a sort of a, a slightly painful inconvenience at, at mm. the start, um, but eventually you kind of get used to it and it it, it changes the balance. Ben, it does mean that no single person, um, even if they are the richest person in the world, can come along and buy a platform and seemingly change all its culture and its features and you know all a lot of other stuff we haven't spoken about um, at, mm. at, at, on a whim or maybe as a bit of a joke as I think this probably was to start with so that shift could you know we may look back on this this kind of year this interim year in, in a decade and, and see this was the inflection point yeah no you're right and I think I'm thinking a lot more short term thinking well yeah the next time I go to a conference will I be giving people my blue sky kind of like right. you know instead of my twitter handle um if you meet people who aren't doing what you're doing you know what would you give them what kind of social media handle would you give them realistically I think for me it might would be my twitter um I don't think I'm yeah I'm yet going to be handing out other kinds of you know handles yeah well actually I've made a bit of a shift in that I'm no longer really on twitter I've locked my account I don't plan to tweet anymore mm. I think I've just run out of patience with it it did coincide with the uh the rumors about charging but actually it's more about other stances that its owner has taken in in recent weeks and months mm. and i just thought this is maybe the moment to to step away so we can maybe track my journey or how how long that journey yeah. lasts in future episodes and see how it's going but as of now yeah you can find me on blue sky and mastodon <sighs> and i i guess threads if you like that's very interesting yeah this is a very forked path because i definitely see myself as being not exactly a twitter loyalist to be clear just possibly too lazy to make other accounts at the moment and yeah. sort of thinking to myself, maybe instead of making other accounts, I should just be dialing down on social media altogether. I don't really know. Um, so you can follow Josh and I in our journey. 
Yeah, I will say that when I, just as an aside on that, like when I was, there are ways to move your uh, Twitter followers or people you follow on Twitter to, to Blue Sky. Um, and mm. we can, I'll give you the, tell you how to do that if you decide to do that at some point, Nana. But um, I was going through all, all the people, list of people I follow, including, you know, back way back when. And I was just struck mm-hmm. by how few of those voices I'd really heard recently, whether because they're not tweeting or because the algorithm is downranking their, their content for not being meme, you know, engaging or viral enough or, or whatever. Mm. Uh, and it, again, it sort of made me think, well, what am I actually here for? Anyway, we all see, <laughs> see how my my uh, attempt to break free from, uh, from Twitter <laughs> goes and how your experience of staying goes as well. We will, as a, as a podcast, we will still be tweeting, obviously, to stay part of the conversation. Yeah, exactly. Out, I know. We'll see how we go. Yeah, I think, um, you know, on a kind of broader note, it's, it, it is sad. Like, even if I'm staying on Twitter, it is sad to see the sort of decline of Twitter. It's sad to be like, there are so many glitches, there are so many, yeah. like, other issues. Um, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty around the platform. And I think I feel like for a year now, maybe longer, people have been saying things like, I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave. What's actually happened is that maybe instead of leaving, people have just sort of kept a foot in the door um, yeah. of Twitter while also setting up you know, three or four new accounts on different platforms, yeah. um, which is a bit frustrating. But I think this is what happens is there, there's not going to be a sort of guaranteed, perfect, bespoke um, duplicate of Twitter. People are going to have yeah. to find their own path, really. Um, but we will still be, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it I'm sure is not the worst and the, the last idea Elon Musk will have about this platform, although there'll be a yeah, lot of scrutiny sure. of X in the coming months, especially with regards to the elections that are happening all over the world next year, something like 2 billion people in the world going out to vote in 50 different countries or over 50 countries. I think X will have a really big hand to play in how how, how information spreads there. And I think it'll be a platform that is extremely important and yet at the moment does not seem up to the task. Yeah, and elections are, as you say, going to be a huge feature of our our coverage in the next year or so. So Mm -hmm. stay tuned for that. Uh, mm-hmm. But another story that's been making the news um, for all the, I think, wrong and sad reasons in the last uh, few days are the allegations, uh, credible allegations uh, made uh, against Russell Brown relating to sexual harassment and assault. Yeah. And uh, also the the effect that that has had uh, on his online presence. So I don't think we're going to delve too much into the allegations, obviously obliged to state that he denies all of them, uh, but looking at the knock-on effect on uh, social media platforms uh, that he's that he's cultivated. So the, the the latest, as we record, is that he has had his content uh, demonetized essentially on YouTube. He can't make money from YouTube videos as of now, uh, but he is still up on Rumble, which is an alternative video platform uh, and of course he's received a bit of support from Elon Musk. Yeah, along with a host of other really reputable yeah. men like Andy yeah. Tate and Tucker Carlson <laughs> really the company you want to keep yeah exactly yeah so yeah I mean we as I say we'll probably stay clear a little bit of the um allegations themselves but Nana what what do you think of of the uh spillover effect this has had on Brown's online presence yeah I think there's I mean as you said there's so much to say about Russell Brand that we won't be able to go into I think on this podcast um but in terms of thinking about demonetization and you know the, the idea that people can be profiting off videos or content um despite the fact that they have these criminal charges against them and despite the fact that they deny those criminal charges is just an incredibly I mean, like terrifying idea. Um, I was really interested actually in the concept of 
of Rumble, and I don't really know very mm. much about Rumble, and I wonder if you if you know much more. I mean, it's it seems like one of those platforms that comes up when you're not when the person in question has pissed off the the mainstream platform yeah. or doesn't believe in the mainstream platform's values. Um, a bit like you know, Parlor, I suppose. But yeah. um, yeah, tell me more about Rumble if you know. Yeah, it's definitely been part of that alt tech space. I think Parler is a decent point of comparison um, for it as a parallel uh, to Twitter. So yeah, it's it's a video site. Uh, I'm not a user of it, but Brand has uh, 1.4 million followers on Rumble. I think as compared to 6.5 million on YouTube. So not a not a massive gap. right. Um, yeah, and clearly he's still able to make money. And I think what's uh, what was also the case or was yeah, talked about on on Parler as well, and is now being talked about on X is this ability to give, you know, set up content creation deals with creators and, and give them uh, a share of, you know, advertising income or whatever else um, for the content that proves popular. And crucially, Rumble mm-hmm. does have that function. So it used to, you know, maybe a five or 10 years ago, if this was playing out back then, you know, YouTube might be realistically your only path to monetizing video content realistically online at, at scale. Whereas now, you know, we have Rumble, we have TikTok, a different different format, obviously. Yeah. A lot more sites are involved in video, including a site like Rumble, which, as we say, is kind of alt tech. And just today, actually, Rumble has hit back against a letter sent to it by the chair of the House of Commons Media Committee, um, who mm-hmm. said that she was concerned about the potential for Brown to profit from his content. Rumble, as I say, pushed back a lot on that. I don't think it mentioned um, the the famous phrase free speech explicitly in its response, but I think it was very much playing to the same kind of uh, rhetoric that it's not Rumble's decision to uh, to sort of take someone essentially off the internet in contrast to YouTube. So we clearly see the development of this, this kind of parallel universe, if you like, and, you know, there's mm-hmm. there's big money in it for somebody willing to say the quote unsayable, like, like Russell Brown. The Guardian estimated mm-hmm. that he might have made might have been making a million pounds a year just off his YouTube channel. Uh, and so th- these are serious sums involved and, and big decisions that are being made or not made by by different platform companies. And I think the fragmentation into these different uh, spheres really does serve, often serve the content creators well because they can say that they're being targeted for their views and this is just the mainstream media and even mainstream platforms like YouTube uh, setting up to, yeah. to try to take them down, which of course is not, not the case, but is maybe a powerful argument for a, for a segment of, of fans. Yeah, Russell Brand has been setting up this idea for a long time that the mainstream media is against him and that, you know, um, and so in, in quite a strange way, the idea of being like deplatformed in a sense by YouTube really feeds into his wider narrative that yeah. the mainstream media is out to get him. So in, in a strange sense, I think demonetization, um, obviously it's not what he wants and like seemingly he makes a considerable amount of money from YouTube, but it is something that can be used the narrative that can be used to further his career purposes mm-hmm. um and the idea of well i went to rumble because it's the only you know only these platforms tell the truth which is something that we've seen a lot and you know the uses of the phrases like truth and alternative media gives this idea that it's about prioritizing small voice like like quieter voices and lesser heard people yeah. and Obviously, ironically, the people who flock to these platforms are people like, as we mentioned, Andrew Tate and Tucker Carlson and Alex Jones and people who don't really have a home on mainstream platforms. Um, Not because, you know, they're not well represented, but because they've said or done things that are like illegal and break the terms of, of, of these platforms. Yeah, on that note, it's worth noting, I think, that the um, 
policy that YouTube cited when it announced that it was suspending him from uh, from monetizing his channel was its creator responsibility policy. Um, and this is mm. a policy which, you know, it's been in place for a while, I think has only been used quite rarely uh, to take, to, you know, to, to uh, demonetize different channels. And I think even though I think we could say YouTube's decision seems very uh, defensible, uh, and it is I think YouTube's prerogative really to to make that decision and to apply its policy. It does even highlight, you know, that just by comparison with Rumble, these are two companies with you know different um, approaches to to this problem. Uh, but these are decisions being taken by by private companies um, with mm. very little democratic oversight, which I think is what the uh, House Commons Chair was trying to uh, to exercise really in the case of Rumble. Uh, about these decisions that are that are being very, made very much outside the public eye and and often seemingly somewhat ad hoc. Uh, so I think it's it is worth reflecting, even as we sort of um, maybe applaud different decisions and, and criticize other decisions made by different platforms. To always keep in in mind the fact that these are you know large, very much unelected, uh, unac- in some ways unaccountable uh, bodies making these decisions, which I think is is yeah should give us all pause for thought really. Yeah, I guess it's it's kind of a mix of, um, you know, it's sort of almost the half measure, isn't it, really? Because mm. he's still on YouTube. He's just not necessarily going to make money off his content on YouTube. And the idea to me that anyone can just look at his, watch his videos anyway, is um, quite reprehensible, really. Um, and at the same time, you know, he's like, yeah, he, he's not being banned from the, from the platform. He's in this weird sort of in-between limbo stage. Um, it, it's almost as if, I don't know, maybe YouTube will make that decision in the future. Maybe they're sort of waiting to see how the rest of this investigation goes, etc. But, um, you know, the idea that, that the content is there is just not being necessarily monetized is quite something. I mean, I wonder how long he'll be able to make videos just, I mean, given that, um, his comedy shows, which he usually promotes on that channel, are drying up, postponed, cancelled, etc. Yeah. I don't know how many times you can make a video saying you're innocent and people still watch it. I have no idea. Then again, maybe I'm not the best person to ask because I'm not yeah. like a core member of the Russell Brand fan base. I'm, I'm not really sure how this will affect him. Yeah, it's an interesting point you make about um, a bit of a half measure. I think there's some cases in which that could actually be a good thing because, yeah, as you say, the videos are still up there and uh, I suppose a free speech, you know, uh, maximalist Mm. um, would have little counter to that. You know, you're not depriving someone of their liberty Mm. by telling the company money or just depriving them of of their, their money and... That I suppose is better reflects the fact that YouTube is is a private company and its revenue is partly down to uh, to you know helping creators monetize their own content. So I suppose in some contexts it could be appropriate. Obviously, this is a very specific context with a lot of complexity behind it, uh, and you might well be right yeah. that it just it's not long before depending what what the content of future videos is. Those videos could could certainly been taken down. We've we've seen public figures have their videos and other content um, taken down and being banned altogether. Mm. So um, I think it's interesting that YouTube took this step and it also took it relatively quickly by, I think, kind of platform governance standards, which was interesting to watch as well. But it has allowed this sort of alt-right flank uh, represented by Rumble to come and say that we have very different values from YouTube. We respect a free and open uh, internet. But again, YouTube hasn't taken steps to to remove content or even necessarily to to downrank it for all we know. 
whether that's going on or not mm. is uh, up for grabs. But I think we just need more accountability in this space. And that was the takeaway from my uh, PhD as it came to kind of how do app store operators in that case, but how in this case, how do video platform operators make these calls? And, and we need to know a bit more about that. It might be something which the Digital Services Act uh, can implement, but because we're not in the EU, we're not going to see the benefits <laughs> of that, sadly, in the UK. Um, but it's something that might be worth keeping on if these um, kind of issues do flare up in, in Europe uh, going forward as well. Yeah, I'm sure Russell Brand will not be the last. Um, you know, I think this kind of investigation shows that a lot of this, you know, this culture is definitely quite widespread. And I think YouTube and other platforms will have a lot to consider on this going forwards. Yeah. Um, so maybe finally, and sort of related, I guess, to the field of entertainment, if nothing else, but something yeah. that maybe we haven't talked about very much this summer, um, an ongoing background point has been the writer's strike in Hollywood. So the Writers Guild of America, the the WGA, um, as, as lo- uh, have been on strike essentially for the last um, almost five months, basically. Um, and they will be meeting today um with you know the alliance of motion picture with the alliance of motion picture and and television producers which is essentially Walt Disney Netflix and other media companies uh having talks um and and bargaining and maybe maybe calling an end to the strike if a deal is reached um mm. so we haven't i mean i kind of wanted to use this opportunity to talk a little bit about the strike which is really significant i mean 5 months is a tremendous amount of time yeah. and also specifically the terms of the strike. So it was an impasse over compensation, minimum staffing in writers' rooms. And also I think interestingly, the role of AI um, as it's yeah. used in, um, you know, media basically. Um, and then they were joined by SAG-AFTRA, the Actors' Union, which is a work stoppage in July. So the first time in like over 60 years, there have been two simultaneous strikes um, between writers and actors, you know, this is really going to affect content. It's already kind of affecting release dates for some things. It means that actors cannot or should not be promoting their work. Um, you know, I think that, I mean, we, we've just had a few years of like sort of like the golden age of television where something is always on. I think we're kind of going to see if the strike continues for much longer, that drawing to a close because there won't be new shows every month. There won't be new yeah. shows every week as there have been. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to know, you know, what have, have you been following the, the strike very much? And what do you think about specifically, I think, this clause about AI um, that has been a really big feature of these, the, the bargaining material? Yeah, it's been an interesting one, hasn't it? Because as, as you say, this has been going, been going on for several months. And even in that time, we've seen, you know, further advances in AI, further uh, conversations about AI uh, developing uh, and the sort of uh, potential for, you know, chatbots and other AI powered tools to potentially mm. displace uh, creative writing amongst many other um, forms of text and image generation is really interesting. And I think it's actually yeah. worked out well that this was put front and centre quite early on in the strike. They could have easily just campaigned on the sort of more traditional bread and butter issues um, related to, to wages and so on. But I think by bringing uh, AI front and centre, they've been ahead of the game. And actually, also this week, we've seen several uh, novelists and other um, writers um, looking to bring a lawsuit against OpenAI for uh, the mm-hmm. use of data. So this is a very live issue in the creative industries, and I'm really glad that it is these industries, among others, that are uh, leading some of the pushback against this because um, these are public figures that people will sort of respond to. Uh, and so, it's it, yeah, it is interesting. We'll have to see what form the assessment takes. There's the, What they're asking for, I think, with, with AI is basically that it 
it not be used to replace writers. I think they see it as a potential to kind of augment and, and do some of the dull yeah. uh, writing tasks. Yeah, absolutely. And also things like with acting, using AI-generated likenesses, which we've actually seen yeah. quite a lot in major franchises like the Star Wars franchise. Um, and, you know, also potentially AI as dubbing, basically, when, like, when, you, when you're translating yeah. from a different language. You know, these are roles that, I guess they see the opportunity to be replaced a lot sooner than full a full scale sort of kind of generative AI replacement. Yeah, as you say, I think it's really interesting that it's happening in the creative industries first. Yeah, we'll have to see what shape any agreement takes if indeed it is quite close because yeah, like I say, I think it's a pretty all or nothing demand really on on AI. I think they'll either address it or they won't. Maybe it's not the the biggest um requirement or or ask that or demand that they have um at the moment but it's it's a significant one so i think it'd be very telling whether it gets included in some kind of agreement um or if it's mm. if it's left out and, and left to to future uh sort of fights over this but i think whatever whatever the outcome it's only going to serve to bring a bit more attention to what ai can do and, and also counterintuitively what it what it can't do because uh you know chat gpt is really good bard is really good at certain things but I still think that audiences, and I may be wrong about this, maybe laughably wrong about this, but I still think that audiences respond best to stories um, from the heart. Uh, and we can debate how quote unquote, yeah. intelligent uh, AI systems are, hmm. but I think they're not bringing a lifetime's worth of experience um, and feeling and depth, depth of emotion to a piece of work. And I think ultimately that's why, partly why we value uh, works of art whether it's on screen or on the page so we will see but I, I'm hopeful that they come to some kind of arrangement which can set some kind of guardrails against uh, the use of AI in this in this particular industry. Yeah I think um, you know I could be again quite laughably wrong about this I feel like we're not looking at you know fully AI generated scripts or AI generated TV shows but more things like AI generated extras or um, you know like like the augmentation of scripts or just the fact that the writer's rooms are just quite bare at the moment and not being compensated very well. Um, but I think that, you know, these all kind of go together. It's, I mean, and I'm interested to see what happens after today. We could be looking at more weeks or months of strike, but you'd think after five months, there would be some kind of movement on that. But, you know, as we know from strikes in other areas of our lives yeah. and other industries, both in the UK and globally, strikes can go on for a really long time. Um, yep. and seeing it in entertainment, you know, maybe one of the most visible strikes in, in the world right now, but I mean, how long have we been having train strikes in, in the UK, Josh, like, or yeah. indeed our very own UCU? Exactly. Lots, um, lots of strikes going on at the moment. Uh, but yeah, interesting to see how this one went and how this one ends. Um, and so speaking of ending, that's, that's the stories that we had, uh, lined up for this show. I don't know about you, Nina, but it's, it's great to be back. It is really, really nice to be back. Uh, it'll be even better when we can when we are back in person. Um, yeah. But as always, we are always looking to hear from people who want to be on the show, want to chat about the show, um, or if you have a story for us, do let us know, and we'll keep in touch and see you soon. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.